This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Williams. And quite honestly, I am absolutely elated for today's show. Um, this is such a fun one. Allie and I actually had the opportunity to visit this place about a year ago while we were over in Hawaii, specifically the island of Oahu, which is where Honolulu is. So today we're going to be talking with somebody that works at a ranch, and you have probably seen this farm dozens, if not hundreds of times, because actually it is Hollywood's favorite filming location when it comes to anything tropical. Um, movies like Jurassic Park, Kong Skull Island, um, 51st Dates, and countless TV shows, Hawaii Five-O, all that good stuff, have been filmed here on an active ranch, an active farm. This place is called Kualoa Ranch, and we are interviewing Taylor Kellerman, who works on the ranch, and it's so cool to talk to him and listen about the whole history of the area, Hawaii agriculture, um, how they manage having an active farm and ranch, and yet these multi-million dollar movies and TV shows come on the farm for a while to film some scenes. And so he'll talk about how they plan that. You know, sometimes they actually have to move the cattle, and he's got a really funny story how sometimes they have to move them whenever they have explosives on the farm because they're filming some pyrotechnic scenes, which is kind of really cool. So Taylor and I are going to talk about all of that stuff, the filming side of it, the farming side of it, um, what Hawaii agriculture is like, and how they're really focused on ag stewardship and taking care of the land and really honoring the land and everybody that came before them in Hawaii. And um, their tours are phenomenal. If you were ever in Oahu, go check them out, Kualoa Ranch. They have a bunch of really cool tours where you can go see the farm. You can go on horseback, you can go on a bus, you can go, there's so many ways you can travel around the farm and just see what all is going on. And they have 
a little bit of everything. They've got chocolate, they've got chickens, they've got pork, they've got beef, they've got countless crops, they've got um, oysters and shrimp. They are an amazing farm, an amazing ranch. Check them out at the website that we'll link below. And also we've got some awesome clips over on YouTube that feature a couple of clips from whenever Allie and I visited. So hope you enjoy this. This is episode 191 with Taylor Kellerman. Hope you enjoy it. Well, perfect. Well, Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. You're from Kualoa Ranch in Hawaii, which I feel like might be one of the most recognizable farms in history because of all the movies you guys are a part of. I mean, that's so cool. You guys probably get that a lot. You know, it's funny because when I first started working here, um, you know, everybody, my contemporaries, my family, you know, the community, I, I told them, hey, you know, I'm, I'm going to start overseeing the agriculture and conservation mm-hmm. management at Kualoa. And the most common answer was always like, I didn't know they did that there. I just know from <laughs> TV rides and movies. And it was quickly became my sole objective to make sure that uh, we became just as known for our farming and our ranching as we do for everything else. And I think we're getting there. We're getting pretty close. But you're right. It's very recognizable. I bet I feel like every movie that features like an island or a jungle, usually they film at Kualoa. And it's also not only like a great filming spot, but it's an active farm. Yep. that you don't really realize until you go and tour there. So give us like a quick little background of like the whole farm, how it started on the farming side, and then maybe like a little bit onto how exactly all the movies and stuff started to get filmed there. Sure. Well, you know, it, it, the history is important because it's 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 vast and it, and it plays into kind of where we are today. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the property itself is just under 4,000 acres and has been in under the own, the same ownership, same family ownership for over 170 years now. And so when you look at the history, it was primarily agriculture, ranching, they did sugar for a little while. And then in the 1980s, you know, being that the state of Hawaii is, is as it became more and more of a tourist state, um, agriculture became less and less economically feasible, quite frankly. And so Mm -hmm. in the early 80s, my manager decided to branch out from not just doing ag and doing things like horseback rides and and, um, taking people more from a visitor standpoint through our agriculture, which is kind of an important um, context, because it's not as though we built a separate area. It's more how do you experience the land? And um, with that, uh, you know, we've always been popular with with, with movies since the 50s and 60s, mm. but it really took off in um, Jurassic uh, Park, you know, the, the whole Jurassic Park franchise. Right. And, um, you know, from there, what's been nice is there's been this symbiosis between the agriculture growth and um, how we appear in Hollywood, because quite frankly, it's part of our kind of economic complement. And so mm-hmm. we're able to grow what we do from an agricultural standpoint, do a lot to the success of our uh, visitor business model, which is directly related to the recognizability of Hollywood. You know, it's kind of our sell in, if you will. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, we were mentioning earlier, my wife and I went there about nine or 10 months ago. We did the, mm-hmm. the movie tour where you drive around the ranch. And it's an active ranch. I mean, there were cows walking in where they were saying movies were shot there, whether it was like 51st States or Jurassic Park or King Kong. I mean, so what all goes into managing the farming side of it to making sure that, I don't know, when a movie visits, you're not going to disrupt the cows. Like how is, what's that balancing act like? You know, it's actually, it's much easier than people would think. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, when movies come in, you know, they come and they scout and they kind of decide, okay, we want to go in this particular region. And we typically have a good amount of heads up prior to Mm -hmm. them starting. And um, 
we, because we recognize the complement between how we're able to run both businesses simultaneously, there are sometimes there are considerations that you might say you might move a herd a week early or you might hold them back or something like that. But in regards to any negative impacts, we, we don't see any. And so a lot of it really has to do with um, kind of knowing what's going to be necessary and then knowing what's necessary on your animal side and holding them in the same regard so that your decision making doesn't end up in a detriment to either side. I realize that's a very generalized statement, but that, <laughs> but that really is what it comes down to. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And you mentioned the movie site tour, and it's kind of funny. You book that and all you think of is Hollywood. And as you know, when you got on the bus we trap you as a, as a, you know, as a um, can't go anywhere type of audience and then force agriculture down your throat for half the tour, which people don't expect coming into it. But oftentimes that's the thing they speak the most fondly about when they leave. So it's, it's a neat, it's a neat kind of theory, I guess. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. yeah. When we did the tour, I mean, I'd heard, you know, it's an active ranch so we saw some cows, but then we're, we're going through, you get to see the crops, you get to see chickens and goats mm-hmm. and everything, all the chocolate. I mean, it's a very diverse operation. So like as the, as the farm manager, like what's it like managing all the ranching side of it? It is an incredible feat of uh, balance. Mm. <laughs> and what I mean <laughs> I by that is, this, I mean, it's not a self-complimentary statement. What I mean by that is we have, you know, over 60 different crops that we do and kind of oh, wow. the chocolate and that ag center that you would have gone to in the movie sector is actually one of five that we have throughout the ranch geographically. From a ranching standpoint, we ranch, you know, throughout the whole property. And then our ag centers are geographically separated due to um, whatever uh, kind of resources are available and how we use them, whether it be, you know, aquaculture ponds, farmland, water, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the the biggest dynamic of managing that many crops really has been able to, we've been, we struggled a little bit in the beginning and and what has honestly helped me the most is we started reaching out to um, internships and we started mm. bringing people in at the college level, at the high school level. And um, I started uh, being able to hire kind of younger folks that may not have had the most experience or be kind of this um, high performance in a particular discipline, but they're so wide eyed and ready and excited about what we do they're able to kind of grow with the company and they're able to kind of navigate this odd dynamic that say somebody who maybe had been ranching their whole lives would struggle with a little bit, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So what were, I mean, chocolate I think is awesome. And I, I mm-hmm. love just growing cacao. We we actually did a tour, um, I think three years ago on the big island in Hawaii. Nice. Um, it's called Lava Loha. And so I know chocolate in Hawaii is really cool, like growing the cacao. Mm-hmm. What are some other staple crops like taro? Taro root? Is that another big yeah. one? So, so cacao is one of our main crops. We do a lot of orchard crops. So from an orchard standpoint, papaya, banana, breadfruit, which we call ulu, which is a very popular crop over here, okay. um, as well as um, some of the more specialty crops from, say, Southeast Asia, like kind of those those real wacky one nobody ever heard of, but people always enjoy trying like the Rambutan, Langan, Star Apple, um, Champadec, things like that. But taro is a huge crop of ours for sure. Um, but we're also very much into the protein. So we do aquaculture, we do oysters, Pacific white shrimp. Um, we do sheep or lamb, um, grass-fed beef. And we also have a, a, a small house where we do deep litter system heritage breed pigs. So when you look at it from a standpoint of diversity, we've been able to actually 
over the past few years, opened up our own on-site market where we're able to, you know, when you have that many products and you live in a food desert like we do, um, it, it was kind of an opportunity in the making. And so we've had some success with that lately. So it's been really good. That's awesome. Yeah, we saw the store there that you had your your beef there that you could buy. I mean, mm-hmm. it's I, I, I think that that's like movie star beef because, you know, the cows are living on a movie set kind of. And so you're like, oh, hey, we could get the beef that, you know, so many movies have been filmed at. Yeah. Produce, it's right there. And yeah, like you don't think about it, but food deserts. And that's something I've learned about a lot on the show. Um, they're everywhere, like even yeah. in pristine places like Hawaii. Like that's something that you might not think about. But it's great that you can help out the local community and have some amazing produce. Mm-hmm. Well, and what's nice is our price points are held low because we're not trying to make up for the added expense of trying to, you know, food production in Hawaii is expensive. The margins are tiny. And so a lot of people are able to pull off a living by, you know, hitting that price point that might be out of the most, you know, a little bit above what you would consider kind of that medium pricing. And for us, because our business model is as such that ag is a huge component of it, and we create a, a good amount of farm income. But because of that um, complementary portion of the visitor industry, we can keep our pricings low. So it's really kind of more of a, um, something where <clears throat> we're doing what we think is the right thing. And we're capitalizing on the success that we've found that makes us unique, but at the same time provides us that opportunity to do so. So it's amazing. Oh, yeah. That's not bad. And, and before I forget about it, uh, do you guys make your own poi? So we do. Well, this is interesting. So th- <laughs> it's a good question. So one of the things is, is that value add is a huge way to not only increase your price point, I, although ironically, when you put that on top of my last statement, but increase your price point. But as well as for us, it's a huge part of um, increasing your shelf life because mm. a lot of the stuff that we do, breadfruit is an amazing crop from when you pick it to when you can't use it is about three days. So it's it's a very, very quick turnaround thing. So we have, rather than invest millions of dollars in capital infrastructure, we partner with local uh, manufacturers and okay. we're able to then support them through um, kind of doing that pay to play or you know um, engage them and you make this for us and give it back to, we pay you a per unit price. And so with Poi, we have a um, nonprofit down the road called Kakoivi. They just built a Poi mill. And so we're able to go down there, use their mill, use their expertise, and then they give us back a finished product. And then we pay them for a per unit in the manufacturing because then we get to kind of spread our success even further. And we actually do that with chocolate as well. We grow, um, harvest, ferment and dry, and then we take it to a local chocolatier who's who's much better than I think I would ever be if I could. <laughs> so, yeah. I, yeah, that's awesome. I, I like that sense of, you know, community where you're not trying to, you know, be a jack of all trades. You're relying on other people also with their expertise. I think that's huge. And, you know, you see that a lot in ag mm-hmm. um, throughout the United States. So that's awesome to see that you guys are really doing that. And really, I guess, like, doing a really good justice to a lot of things Hawaii agriculture. Because, like, not a lot of the stuff is... Um, originated in Hawaii, right? Like things like cattle and stuff like that. Like weren't those all brought in? They were all brought in. In fact, it's ironic. The majority of the crops people associate with Hawaii, um, guava, pineapple, sugar, all that kind of stuff. Those were all introductions. And so Mm. when you look at what were more of the indigenous or what we call canoe crops, um, canoe crops actually refers to what Polynesians brought with them when they first landed in Hawaii, because most of the Polynesian culture came from Tahiti and, and other areas of the Pacific. Um, there are things most people don't even associate, kukui nut. Um, you're looking at things like uh, the banana, sweet potato, things like that. So 
we're, we're trying to find that balance, but at the same time, hopefully that education piece leaks through at the same time. <laughs> yeah. That was something that, I mean, again, like if you're ever, if anybody listening is ever in, in Hawaii, like the, the tour is amazing. And our tour guide covered that a lot. Like, Hey, a lot of stuff that we have here on in Hawaii wasn't actually, it didn't originate here. Like a lot mm. of stuff was brought in, but it's awesome. I feel like Hawaii agriculture is still keeping like their identity with all the crops going on, like whatever, mm might be doing now, whatever might have been like originated in Hawaii. I think it's cool. And I think what, you know, Hawaii agriculture is um, a great thing. But I will say like, I tried poi. I tried it <laughs> several times. It was okay. I couldn't really yeah. get into it. And I've heard that you either love it or you're, you know, you're kind of not really a fan of it. So I imagine as a local, you're probably a fan of poi. You know, I, I grew up with it because it's a very common baby food here. And so oh, okay. I don't recall the first time eating it. Um, I, I'm, I don't have Hawaiian ancestry, but I've my, I'm third generation. My kids are fourth generation living here. So it's one of those things where um, I'm used to it. I do enjoy it, but I also have enough context where I can see where if you didn't grow up with it, it might be something that you might not do a double take on. But uh, it's, it's a really cool thing. Um, honestly, just from a, a nutritional standpoint, though, because it is... Um, a complete nutrition, but then it also is, uh, it, there's no allergens associated with it. Oh, so okay. People are actually looking at trying to figure out how could Hawaii be a center for the ramping up of production for things like baby foods and things like that, which would be great to see in the future. And that's kind of one of those things we're looking at is how do we um, take away agriculture back from um, what it used to be? Because we used to be these giants in these export business of sugar and pineapple. And when they left, we kind of We've been slowly trying to figure out who we want to be when we grow up since. So, yeah, yeah, that makes allergenic. That's the word I was thinking. Of. There you go. Yeah. Hypoallergenic. I didn't know that there are no allergies associated to poi. I mean, that's mm -hmm. really cool. We could try to figure out, you know, what is causing that and how we could maybe bring it to other crops or other foods. I don't right. know. Like that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. But but it is an interesting taste. <laughs> it is. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Some of my wife's coworkers are like, oh, poi is delicious. You got to get a big old plate of it. And so we did. We tried it. We're like, oh, OK, this is different. This this is an acquired taste, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard some people associate it with wallpaper paste, but I don't know. I've never eaten wallpaper paste. I'm not sure. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Like maybe those people tried wallpaper paste. I don't know. That has never seemed appetizing, but all right. I kind of get the point. Um so how difficult is it farming in Hawaii? Because I'm imagining, you know, something breaks. You've obviously maybe got to buy something from the mainland. It's going to be shipping is going to be a nightmare. It's going to cost a lot. Like, what's it like? What are some challenges you've experienced growing stuff in Hawaii? You know, it's a good question. I think probably the most uh, challenging portion is honestly our climate. And what I mean by mm -hmm. that is people associate the tropics with year-round sunshine and all of these terrific growing environments. And, and quite frankly, that's totally true. However, what makes our crops thrive in that also makes things like insects and fungal pathogens mm. also thrive. And so when you have no winter and you have no break in that cycle, um, trying to grow things like European vegetables in Hawaii, while from a soil, heat and water standpoint, they get everything they need you got to figure that our, our insect pressure and our fungal pressure is just constant and never goes mm -hmm. away. Um, I think that from just a general crop standpoint, from a ranching standpoint, it's an interesting challenge because we're looking, we do a grass-fed, grass-finished program. And to be totally honest, uh, a finished cattle for us is a thousand pounds in 28 months. 
And when you wow, consider okay. the fact that a feedlot cow is 1500 at 16 months or something like that, what that really plays into is we have these beautiful rangelands. Um, however, tropical grasses tend to be a little bit lower in nutrition because of that year round type of thing. There's not that hardening off. And so trying to find that uh, multi forage, you know, your broadleafs, your your different types of grasses, you know, what what types of mixes of forage are going to give you that nutritional level you can get. And then to your point, you know, the availability of things like like for hogs, like hog feed, irrigation equipment, the availability is actually not so much an issue, although during COVID it was, it's, oh, okay. it's the price. Mm-hmm. It's take everything that you could buy in the Midwest and tack on trucking to the West Coast and then maritime shipment. And then if you're in a neighbor island, another maritime shipment. So it's it's really more so, you know, we always talk about agriculture being a discipline of um, a balance of nature and human, right? And so you think about, okay, you're going to promote your business plan so that you can create a generator revenue that creates a, a cost of living. However, every time you look at Hawaii in regards to those types of costs, you always reduce that um, general revenue because your overhead always increases. So that, I think, honestly, are the the two biggest challenges that I find is yeah. that we we don't have that wintering break in cycle for any sort of um, pathogens and just just general costs, quite frankly. So yeah. going off of the pest thing, I heard that you guys also have a is it a mongoose problem, right? Yeah, it, it's interesting. So you know how uh, they always say don't judge past actions with present knowledge. Um, yeah. We could write a book on that. So <laughs> there's been a lot of instances where an issue was identified, a solution was brought in and that solution just became a new problem. And mm-hmm. um, mongoose were brought in by the Sugar Planters Association a long time ago to take care of the rats in the right. sugar plantations. Well, mongoose are daytime and rats are nocturnal. And so mongoose just became another nuisance. Quite frankly, from a um, agrarian standpoint, the only time I have run-ins with mongoose is they eat chickens and chicken eggs. So if oh, you're okay. doing free-range egg production like we do, um, they tend to be a big issue. So we actually, if you look at our our um, chicken areas, we have uh, pneumatic mongoose traps in every corner um, to help us kind of navigate that situation. Nice. And how effective is that, those those traps? They're very effective. Yeah. Really? Very, very effective. They're expensive, but they're very effective. I, I bet they're worth their weight in gold. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I think cost-wise, it's probably similar. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, did, did y'all have like a, I don't know, like a huge issue with the mongooses, like attacking the chickens, and that was what you resulted to? Basically. Or, okay, okay. Yeah, we also, we do, um, we have a department dedicated to just what we call land stewardship, which is kind of better known as natural resource management. Mm-hmm. So these are eight personnel that's purely privately funded that are meant to really work with invasive species eradication, native species promotion, um, you know, things like riparian restorations, natural resource management, rain shed management. And a lot of our native birds are heavily impacted by mongoose, uh, just really? like chickens would. And so we also uh, deal with them in that context as well, using okay. similar methods. Yeah. Yeah. When, when Again, when we did the tour, like it didn't like it felt like a farm, but it felt more, I don't know, more natural because it mm-hmm. wasn't segmented. We're just going on the tour. And um, I, I think at one point we went by some ponds and like some huts. There was like mm-hmm. 
it was like looking about what it looked like a couple hundred years ago. And then I look off in, in like a little stream and there's cows. They're just mm. walking to the stream, pulling off. And you're like, oh, hey, the cows are enjoying the stream. They're just out and about and we're driving on the road. There's cows all over the place. And so it felt like a very natural, a very, you know, homey place for the cows, which mm. I really appreciated. I mean, is that something you guys have intentionally tried to instill with the ranch? It is. And I think a lot of it is, you know, all island nations, or I shouldn't say all island nation, we are an island nation. And so what you learn very quickly, particularly if you're in a, something that has to do with natural resources, is we are on a slope. No matter where you mm-hmm. are, you're on a slope. And so whatever you do up slope affects what happens down slope. And so when you look at um, how we manage resources in Hawaii, there's a concept called ridge to reef. And what it basically means is that if you're taking care of your 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 upper forest, you're taking care of your farmland in what we call the mala or the mid area, and you're taking care of your coastline, they all work together to create a good ecology for the entire um, state. And, you know, that method of land management was referred to in ancient Hawaii called the Ahupua system, which is basically a land division that encompasses everything you would need to support a population. So at the top, you've got your fresh water. In the Midlands, you've got your farmland. And on the coast, you have your area for fishing and collecting and and foraging. And so we, as a property owner, um, retain uh, three valleys, which are actually three complete Ahupua systems. And so Mm. the fact that in 2023, we're able to manage the land all the way from where the freshwater point sources are up in the forest all the way down to what we're doing on the coast, particularly on the island of Oahu, as we all know, Oahu is one of the more more densely populated. It's a it's a lost concept that we are trying to re-champion, if you will. And so a lot of that symbiosis that you saw where it's not kind of like ag or ranching or conservation, you know, yeah. we actually look at them as complementary and actually held in equal regard. And that's been neat because, as you know, you know, if you're a rancher, um, you sometimes look at the conservationists across the room with, uh, you know, a lot of times there's this kind of thought process of antagonistic relationships and, and objectives. And we don't look at it that way at all. It's very much everything's got to work together to create that um, environment and that ecology if we're going to perpetuate the type of farming and ranching that we do. So. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a lot of pressure there for you guys, because if you guys mess something up, I mean, you can damage the freshwater, you can damage yep. the beach, which is right there. And yep. obviously, you can also damage um, the beautiful scenery, which would impact mm-hmm. like shows when it come out there. So there's a lot of pressure to, to like continue producing at the farm, but also maintain that natural balance. And that's yep. cool that you can have it go back to what was being done hundreds of years ago. Yeah, no, it's very true because, you know, I I mentioned that our land stewardship department is an expense, but, you know, it's an expense, but with intent, meaning it just doesn't drive revenue. When you look at its place in our business, it's imperative, you know, and I think that, you know, we've always kind of said, you know, I I have a degree in, in tropical agriculture and, you know, I learned all this stuff scientifically in classrooms and textbooks. But if you look back to some of the elders, particularly in the indigenous, um, Hawaiians that have you know, occupied this place since 500 AD, they'll tell you with more precision how things work in nature, just simply through generational um, gathering of knowledge and, and, and mm. kind of thinking of it that way, where I would kind of make that joke. It's like, yeah, you can explain that to me scientifically. This person can explain it to me just through experience. And honestly, 
kind of trust the experience. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Tried and true over hundreds and hundreds of years, you know. So we we definitely try to look, you know, not to sound too cheesy. We definitely try to look backwards when we're looking forwards. So yeah, that that's cool, and that, that's a really smart way to do things. I mean. I feel like that's a trend where we're going back to not really the basics, but we're, I feel like a lot of farmers and ranchers are doing a better job of like harnessing what, what the, the experience of hundreds of years ago with technology and just kind of like combining those a little bit to have the yeah. best of both worlds. Yeah. No, cause there, there is an economic um, consideration and I, and I definitely don't want to imply that, you know, it, they're, they're to, to your point. Yes. I, I think that the future is the combination of the two. You know, modern farming practices, I think, are amazing. When you look at some of the precision ag and the implementation of technology, that's incredible. And that's mm-hmm. definitely going to help us, particularly when you're looking at limited resources, you know, um, the water, the precision fertilizer applications, things like that. I, I'm a huge fan of that as well. So I, I kind of look at it like, can you take those holistic values and then implement them with modern day precision um, inputs? That's, yeah. that's a win-win, in my opinion. So. Yeah, and that technology is a complementary thing instead of just something we have to go 100% towards and ignore right. what we've been doing for hundreds and thousands of years. Like it's another tool in our toolbox, really. Exactly, exactly. And and I'm a, I am a huge, you know, we we are always asked, you know, you know, are you all organic? Do you do are you um, biodynamic? All this kind of things. And and my answer is no. And what we consider ourselves is responsible agriculture. And what I mean by that is when we're making agronomic decisions. We look at the health of the environment and our consumer first and foremost, but we're a triple bottom line philosophy company, which means that it has to be economically sustainable as well. And so there's a realism that needs to come into these decision makings because it's really easy to kind of go off tangentially on the romanticism of what farming used to be. And particularly, I'm, I, I will admit I'm, I'm really kind of gearing this more towards people outside of our industry because there does seem to be this, this motivation to um, for consumers to want to know where their food comes from and have the most healthy thing. But there is this notion that new is bad and old is good. And, you know, it's it's interesting because I always kind of say, well, I mean, we don't think that way about our cell phones, do we? So why, why do we put that restraint on the, the farmers, you know? So we're, we promote basically good agricultural practices. And, and I don't, and I make it a very good point to not demonize or villainize um, the direction that we have found ourselves in. Because not to soapbox too hard, but quite frankly, it, nobody sat there and made particular decisions at a point in time. It's something that happened. Our modern food system is a is a um, result of micro checks and micro changes, based mostly on consumerism. If you think about it, so it's interesting, you know. Sorry, I can go off on that tangent pretty hard. So no, that's perfect. I mean, honestly, that was my next question. Like, would you guys be considered organic or conventional? But I mean. Mm-hmm you're figuring out what works best for you guys and your environment and your land and your animals and seeing what works, what doesn't, what has worked for hundreds of years, what technology can you infuse? And I think that's a really cool thing. Like I'm not a farmer. I know a little bit about farming and ag doing this for a couple of years, but like at some point we consumers have got to trust the farmers. Like whatever we read up on Google is only going to be so good because we haven't, you know, we don't work on a farm. We don't know, the decisions you guys are making for the environment, for your animals, for, and of course, for the bottom line. And so obviously you're going to make good decisions and do really good research because it's your job. It's your land. There's so much riding on your shoulders to make a good decision, obviously. Yeah. Because if you think about it, shortcuts are short-sightedness and short-sightedness tends to equal, uh, 
just in its definition, a lack of longevity. And so mm. a rancher, a farmer whose sole income is based on the health of their land and their animals and their crops is, you know, not going to be making short-sighted decisions or shouldn't be, you know, and, and, you know, to your point, it's always good to question, but, you know, there is a point where there, you know, we have an interesting dynamic here and, and it, what it is, is I've heard this over and over again, you know, pre, pre-contact, which is prior to Western contact, yeah. uh, Hawaii was completely sustainable and we had a huge population, hundred percent agree. It was an incredible feat. If you look at ancient aquaculture and agriculture practices, Hawaiians were top notch. Um, but what I always like to point out to people is that at that time, 65% of the population was involved in food production. Mm, so yeah. we are now at a point where we're at 2% or less. And, you know, it, I always love that bumper sticker. If you've eaten today, thank a farmer, you know, and I think so. It's kind of one of those things where we do have to recognize that, you know, the farmers are required to produce food for everyone else. And so limiting their toolbox based on a hypothetical what if or <laughs> something that you're not necessarily even very schooled on is something I caution people from doing because play the whole movie kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Um, I did not know that, that, you know, 65% of Hawaiians back then were involved in agriculture and that's why it was so sustainable around, around that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, with 2%, I mean, that 2% can only do so much to feed the, the what, 7 billion mouths we have three right. times a day. And the problem is we're not doing that really well because, you know, food waste and all that good stuff. So yeah. you, you don't need to limit that toolbox. And the toolbox reference, I've heard that a lot this year from different farmers and ranchers, mm-hmm. like the toolbox is there. We've got to use what we've got to use. And it's, it's there because like it's driven by consumers and their wants and needs, but also how we're going to reach those expectations. Right. Exactly. Exactly. The toolbox is really, it's a very ubiquitous term with how we do what we do. And I think that there's a lot of external influence with with intent to limit certain tools in our toolbox. And honestly, some of them, yeah. I mean, you look at some of those pesticides from the from the 50s and 60s, you know, we, we've come a long way technologically in even in pest control. And there, yeah, I can see why, hey, maybe that chlorpyrifrose or something, you know, maybe that's not necessary because we've got these more modern, friendlier versions that are a little more, um, you know, work directly on the insect that you're looking for. It's not just this broad spectrum type of thing. So I, I don't want to totally say, you know, farmers should be totally left alone. But I think that <clears throat> my real call out is when people feel like they see uh, um, something that they want to jump on, you know, jump on a train is to oh, yeah. really look at um, the two sides and, and do their due diligence in when researching to not remain in an echo box and mm-hmm. really kind of try to see what you know what I mean? Like really educate yourselves before, because what we're finding at least locally is that legislators are listening to general public concern and, and without a lot of, um, you know, proofing themselves. And, and we're finding ourselves in some interesting predicaments because of that. So, Oh, hundred percent. And kind of going off of, you know, like don't limit yourself to what's out there. Is there anything that you've used that maybe you were skeptical about it and then it changed your mind or maybe you were a fan of it and then you were completely against it? Like in your farming background, has there been any moment that's kind of changed your perspective on what you initially thought? 
Totally. So I have a very poignant example. So <laughs> we, do, we do a deep litter system piggery, which is basically our entire piggery sits on a giant six foot deep pit. And in that mm-hmm. pit, it's logs about, you know, eight inches in diameter and then branches and then um, wood chips. And those wood chips are inoculated with what's called an indigenous microorganism, which is basically uh, microbial growth that you'll see, you know, when you have a multiple in your backyard and you flip it and you see that white webbing. Yeah. Very similar to that. It's basically okay. the microbial growth that uh, works on breaking down organic matter in whatever environment you live in. Um, we spray our pens with what's called lactic acid bacteria, which is basically whey from milk when you separate curds and whey. Okay. And then we also spray it with something called um, FPJ, which is fermented plant juice. So I originally worked on the plantations and the pineapple. And so I'm coming from a very commercial background. So I go to this, um, I go to this seminar and I hear about these piggeries. They're no smell because what it does is that the entire mulching floor acts as a giant mushroom and gets rid of uh, pig waste and food waste aerobically. So there's no smell that breaks down the forest floor. And um, when I first heard about this, I was just like, this is snake oil. You got to be kidding me. Like, this, <laughs> come on, right? This kind of thing. It works absolutely incredibly. It's one of those things that I, if you had just told me about it and I'd never seen it, I still probably wouldn't believe it. But I think that was a huge shift for me. And that plays into the biggest shift that when I went to high school and college, soil was meant to be a substrate that you fed with you know, fertilizer and, and did things to, to hold your plants up. And I think what's been a huge shift in my world and just the world of ag in general is the importance of soil health, the importance of mm. the microbial growth, the importance of the millions of little critters that live in dirt and how that actually has a huge impact on plant health, how many inputs you got to use, what kind of pest control you got to use. You know, I mean, it's, it's uh, those two are, are, are massive in, in my mind. And so, well, you know, the one thing that was something I didn't think I'd like was the the piggery. And the one thing that shifted was, you know, we have to stop looking at um, farming being solely what man does in nature. It's a balance between nature and man, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, those are those are really good. I So I heard a quote one day. I, I had this ag class in, in college and we went to the University of Florida. They had their like a plant breeding farm. Hmm. And we were driving some tractors as like a class exercise. And the guy that worked there, he's like, you know, farming's not that hard. The plants know what to do. We're just helping them get there. Mm-hmm. And I always think about that. Like, you know what? Like, we're not telling corn what to do. Corn knows how to do it. We're just giving it the right things to grow. We're doing that for all yep. produce or even like cows, for example. Like the cows know what to do. We just have to help the cows grow. Like. It, it's you got to work in harmony with nature and what's already happening. You know, I, I heard a really cool supplement to that, which is have you the concept of growth potential, uh, uh, yield potential? Have you heard that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like every crop has a yield potential if left in a perfect environment. And the way that um, nature works is there is kind of a finite source of energy. It's an energy budget that Mother Nature works with. And, you know, she needs to kind of distribute it equally throughout. And that includes pests, that includes things that you as a farmer may not like. And so all a farmer is really doing is, is crafting a situation so that that plant can hit its highest yield potential possible. Mm-hmm. It gets the most sunlight it can get. It gets the most food it can get, water it can get. 
Um, and so that I always thought was really neat because then it kind of takes the human out of like, you know, okay, you're the guy, you're doing it all. It's like, no, you are a steward, uh, basically attending to a natural process and you, manipulating isn't even the right word. You're, you're creating an environment so that that crop has its best yield potential. So looking at it that way, I think is a cool shift in, in mentality as well. Yeah, that, that's a really good shift. I like that. I mean, instead of like, you know, we're working all the magic, we're doing all the work and like, no, we're just, you. we've got to make the perfect scenario for that plant to have like great yield potential or even for the, for the livestock. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Instead of, you know, just, just pumping massive amounts of pesticides or fertilizers into there, which I mean, does have a good yield potential, but you know, at what cost? Usually yeah. going back, it goes to the soil health and you're degrading yeah. the, the health of the soil for the long term. So- yeah. And I think that's also a really good trend that I've seen a lot lately, like the importance of soil health, like paying attention, whether it's doing things like crop rotation, cover crop, something like that to where we're, you know, being intentional with the soil and making sure that we're not depleting it of the nutrients, which I think is huge. Yeah, because when it comes to crops too, for me, I've noticed, you know, um, pathogens predate on stress. Stress is caused by unhealthy plants and unhealthy plants are caused by environments that aren't maximizing their ability. And a lot of times, you know, uh, if you're choosing just a, a human input system, you may be able to um, achieve what you're looking to achieve a few times in a row, but eventually it's going to come back and get you a little bit. And so for us, it's really more of, you know, I there are certain crops we use prill uh, uh, conventional fertilizers on. So mm-hmm. I, I don't want to imply that I'm this, that go this one way, but when it used to just be okay every three months you throw your you know 15 5 49 and um watch your peaks and valleys right <laughs> it's more so you do that <clears throat> you have your mulching program you're making sure your watering is on top and you know it, it, a lot of that has to do with you know i i heard plant health is the best fertilizer pesticide there is you know what i mean so we we try to adhere to that and again the the it goes back to that whole tool belt where you know, we, we, we pick those things that we think will have the least impact on environment and, and health of our customer, um, obviously promoting the best health. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's it's a balance. It's really easy to say one way, but, you know, it's it's really kind of maintaining that balance. I gotcha. And speaking of water, you guys are on Oahu, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So tourism is a huge, huge thing there. A lot of mm-hmm. farming, a lot of agriculture going on. Is water an issue you guys face? I mean, obviously, you're surrounded by salt water. You've got a bunch of water there. But is, is that an issue you guys have to worry about? Currently, no, because we are on an aquifer. So the way these okay. islands work is we have a freshwater lens underneath the uh, bedrock. Mm-hmm. And um, those aquifers are what's typically tapped. And then we also do a lot of surface water. So surface water catchment um, used in agriculture irrigation is a pretty common practice. Um, but so as wells, and you know, anytime you're completely relying on an aquifer, as everybody knows, that does have its limitation, and that limitation is is are the rains. You know, we saw what happened in California, right? Are the rains sufficient for what's being drawn? And yeah. um, we do run into um, drought issues, um, but I think the most impactful of the drought is the pasture land, because when it comes to cost of pumping water and um, uh, irrigating pastures, it, it just, it, it creates a very, it, you're taking a very small margin and you're making it disappear when you add on certain costs like that. 
So from a freshwater standpoint, we're very lucky in that thus far it has not been a huge issue. However, like I said, from a pasture management, it can be a huge issue and, and has been more and more recently. And not, not to jump into a new subject, but one thing that I have noticed is that um, from a weather standpoint, I'm 46, I've lived here my whole life, and I'm starting to see weather events um, that are just much more extreme. And so that's mm. where I get nervous when it comes to water, because we, um, you know, there used to be a pretty predictable pattern of weather throughout the year. And my institutional knowledge of that is becoming yes, less and less um, relevant. You know, we're starting to see things where I'm like, I've never seen that before. You know, thunder and lightning. That never happened when I was a kid. Now really? We now we get it all the time. Um, this past, so so three years in a row, five years ago, we had multiple uh, 15 plus inch rains in 24 hour periods. Massive, wow. massive flooding, which is not unheard of, but to have multiple. And in the last two years, we shifted to expect those and we've had none. So the predictability is definitely changing. So when it comes to that aquifer recharge, I, I do, I'm, I'm nervous isn't the right word because that's not, you know, nobody's going to call me and ask me for my opinion. So it's more <laughs> so just observational, you know. Just the anticipation of what's going to happen. You're like, eh, I don't know yeah. what's going to happen. This is weird. Yeah. The, the energy just seems to be coming in bigger blocks, it seems. I don't know if you guys noticed that where you are, but it just, you know, things to be just seem to be a little more extreme, it seems. So, yeah. So I'm from Florida. I mean, I'm currently in D.C., but in Florida, you know, we have hurricanes all the time and they always told us like, oh, like the next hurricane season is going to be horrible. And then mm -hmm. there's nothing. There's like maybe one or two major storms. And then like it goes by and then like maybe once every three years, there's like four or five that are crazy. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, oh, the next year is going to be even worse. And then it's not. Right. So it, it seems like the storms are like very inconsistent, but when they are bad, there's a lot of them, which is weird. So that's the same thing we're experiencing. I'd really? say that's okay. a very similar thing where, where the predictability is gone, but yet when things do happen, it seems to be more intense for sure. And you guys have typhoons or yeah, typhoons, right? Uh, hurricanes. Hurricanes. And, okay. And yeah, same, same thing, but it, yeah. it's just semantics, but it's, it's um, interestingly enough, and I shouldn't say this out loud, but I'm going to knock on my desk when I say it. <laughs> we, we haven't had a direct hit in 30 years. Really? And okay. So that is the big thing that all the old timers kind of loom over the youngsters is, oh, it's been 30 years. What's happening? <laughs> <So>. <laughs> we're, we're due yeah. for another one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what that's what it, it always is in Florida. It's like, oh, it's been five years or it's been six years. Or we're bound for another one. And yeah. Yep. It, it happens usually. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember my wife and I, our, our honeymoon was in Bora Bora. And that was my first time like out of the country. It was a great time. And the whole time I was nervous about typhoons. Mm -hmm. And so we're down there, we're in a bungalow. And my phone goes off in the middle of the night, like typhoon warning. I'm like, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen? There's going to be a, a tsunami. What's going to happen? And I check it. And it was like near Japan or something. Uh, and I was like, okay, we're good. But I was terrified because yeah. like you could hear the wind going through the bungalow i was like it's it's literally about to be here i'm like there's no high ground what's happening <laughs> <laughs> all those hollywood movies start running through your head yeah i know exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. like this is gonna be like 2021 the movie is gonna be like armageddon what's happening but it, it was fine it was a yeah. good time um so going back to the movies has there ever been a time where you guys are working on the farm for example maybe you're redoing um you're working with the cows or redoing mm -hmm. some chicken coops or something 
where you maybe had to like turn away a movie or you maybe had to reschedule them where you kind of put the wrench first? Like, has there any been any situations like that? No, there has been times where we've, we've been where we've had to decline requests, um, mm. meaning meaning that it's not as though we turn them away. But, you know, um, they'll come in and they'll say, we'd like to do this, this and this. And, and we have had times where we've had to say we can do this, but we can't do this. Yeah. And mostly it just has to do with the balancing of the other businesses, because if you think about it, our, our visitor industry is one pillar. Our agriculture and stewardship is one pillar. And then our movies and events is one pillar. And so um, where we've been successful is kind of holding those in equal regard. And so really, if the movie is going to heavily impact one of the other two, we will ask them to adjust. But quite frankly, um, a lot of it has to do with how you accept their request, meaning that Mm. when somebody wants to shoot, the first thing they do is they send out a scout. And if you are very quick to set expectations on that scout, that scenario doesn't play out very often. You know, it's pretty easy to kind of uh, to to guardrail what they can do, um, knowing from historical reference what will and won't work. And so. We luckily have a gentleman who's one of the um, one of the owners that is kind of that key kind of intentional bottleneck, and yeah. he's really good at that because deep down inside he's a rancher farmer. You know, he's he's That's cool. he's, he's one of us as we say, and and so he's always you know real real good about making sure the impact is minimal. That's also and have you seen? I mean, obviously, you probably have seen, but like, what are some movies that have, or TV shows that have filmed there while you've been there, and maybe you got to go see them? Yeah, no, no, it's it's really crazy. So um, Jumanji was a really fun one to watch. Mm. Um, you know, we we uh, it, it, for a quick story, it was kind of funny because you know they have the body doubles look a lot like the actors. And oh yeah. If you remember Jumanji, they were being chased by guys on motorcycles running down the hill, and the body doubles for Jack Black, Kevin Hart, and The Rock were practicing. There's no cameras, nothing like that. I'm busy moving a, a herd. I'm opening a gate and uh, a tour bus pulls up and I hear this woman in a very thick Southern accent and go, oh my God, it's the rack. It's the rock jack heart. <laughs> and I look around and there's no cameras and I know what's going on, but I kind of look at her and I'm like, you're right. It absolutely is. <laughs> she's going to go home and tell all her friends, oh my God, I saw this, this, and this. And you know what? Perception is reality. That's fantastic. That's what we want, you know? But the other thing that was really neat is I get to live on ranch and I live in a pasture and they filmed uh, Midway. Do you see that movie? Oh yeah. 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 So that, that, that scene where the bombers went and, you know, uh, attacked Japan and then had to land in China. And that, that whole scene was filmed right in front of my house. And okay. it was neat because I'll be honest, it was a 30 day build out for a one day shoot. Really? And oh, they wow. shot on Saturday. And so I was watching it with my kids from our deck. And I kind of made the point. I said, you see that umbrella that's walking around the crowd? I said, that's somebody important. Because <laughs> you can tell it was somebody following. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, both, all the Jurassic Worlds were filmed here. Um, they do a lot of Netflix movies like uh, um, Triple Frontier was filmed here. Um, both of the, uh, the one that came out with Jennifer Aniston and... Um, uh adam sandler the new one oh yeah where they're on like a boat or something yeah that both of those were filmed here um we a lot of lost was filmed here you know there's we've had over 60 movies and like 40 shows filmed here and um part of it is because we're private and we're Mm -hmm. known to be very friendly and so and the state of hawaii also um has an agreement 
with the filming industry where we provide tax breaks to encourage people to come and film here because of it being a, an industry economically for our islands for diversity. Yeah, so, that's perfect. Yeah, when we were doing the tour, I mean, you get in there, you see the valley, you see the mountains. I was like, okay, I have seen this in about a dozen movies. So yeah. now I know where it's been yeah. filmed because it's very recognizable. Well, in CGI now, it's incredible. Like like the Triple Frontier, the valley that I live in is um, was the Andes. They just put snow on the top. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, on the tour, they were talking about it. Um, so I haven't seen that movie, but I've seen clips of it. And there's one scene where they're like walking on the edge of a mountain. Yeah. And they said that that shot was filmed right on the road yeah. of like one of the, one of the main tours. And it's like in the movie, it's this huge cliff face. Yeah. But then like uh, when you're walking there, it's literally right by the road. And so they're just like faking it and acting that they're on this cliff. I was like, that is hilarious because this does not look intimidating at all. Like you're going to fall off. Well, and, and insider info, I remember that day they had a huge problem with the donkeys not cooperating. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I forgot there are donkeys in there. Walk up. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. So it, I don't know if they covered this on the tour, but obviously in a lot of those movies there are explosions. So do they mm -hmm. have explosions on the ranch go off? Or? They do. Yeah. And in fact, Jurassic World, one of them, it was it was incredible. I mean, it was because the thing is, is this valley, if you can picture it, it's like a box canyon, but kind of like a box canyon. So any sort of explosion reverberates for 10 seconds. Oh, okay. I live right at the mouth. And so I'm told, hey, we're going to be doing explosions tonight, live fire, that kind of thing. And you'll be sitting there, you know, and, and then I'm in the middle of nowhere, so it's very quiet. And then you'll just hear these just huge booms <laughs> and you can see the light in the back of the valley. And it's 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 neat. I You know, my kids are, they're now 11 and 14, so I think it's becoming less interesting. But when they were little, oh, yeah. they love to go kind of take a look at that kind of stuff. So that's neat. Um, I mean, are the livestock kind of accustomed to it by now also? We okay, so that's a good example. So if they're going to have something like that, we will typically move the herds to an area away from it, just because yeah, okay. from the stress handling, it's it's easy for us to do. It, it for that type of thing, we will move them, and then when they're done, we put them back where they're supposed to be. Because gotcha. we I do mean, we do intensive grazing, so they're all call trained, and we have about six hundred head and um five different um herds and so they're all in a rotation that five to seven days is the longest they'll stay in their pasture so yeah. moving them around is not difficult they're pretty used to it so okay that's smart i mean get them you know um getting different fields getting different diets and also like from an animal health perspective i feel like that's smart not to have them around explosions a lot because yeah. you don't want to have it stampede <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> So what's the future looking like for you guys? Is, is there more you're going to try to start farming or ranching? Like, what's the future looking like? You know, it's pretty cool because we have been, we came out of COVID, uh, you know, we were closed for nine months. And mm. as a father and somebody who lived on site that's head of ag, it was, it was great for me <laughs> for a little while. I bet, yeah. Was, yeah, you had, you had your own little world. But, you know, quite frankly, our, our business model was suffering and we were able to, you know, do a lot of the things companies did, but we, we, we survived it and we came out and we kept thinking, you know, okay, we're going to be just as strong. And, and boy, I got to tell you, we've been even stronger. I mean, when you look at our business from uh, um, how we're doing economic health wise, we're doing great. And so just uh, recently for 2023, we're obviously in now, but, you know, kind of seeking those goals for 2023, 2024. Our president um, pulled me in and um, said, okay, we're doubling down on ag and stewardship. And so mm, okay. what we've been able to do is we've been able to basically take this financial success through the entire model 
and again, keep these three pillars, you know, very relevant to each other. And so we're able to then take my organizational chart and build on it. Because what we're finding is that so many of the areas we farm in, um, ranching, you know, where we ranch is pretty, from a footprint wise, pretty steady. Mm -hmm. Where we farm in, there are all of this farmland on property that is derelict, meaning that it was farmed by lease farmers 100 years ago, and it's been sitting in kind of invasive since. And so what we're able to do from a ranching standpoint, as an example, is rather than, you know, take down forest to put in new pasture, we look at the pasture we have, see how we can improve the forage. From an agricultural standpoint, we're looking at, okay, let's take these areas that has all this ag infrastructure, is really just sitting in invasives and take it back to farming. And what we do that by is, as we do that, we achieve success, we achieve a solid business plan. And then when we start a new one, we start that new one with the same staffing of the original site. Pretty soon, that new site kind of grows out of the original staffing, and then we'll put a dedicated staffing into that. I realize that's kind of confusing. But really, what we're doing is just building the team so that we can be a lot more poignant, a lot more productive in all of these new areas that we're getting into. So I'm excited because it means that, um, you know, we're, we're really taking this seriously and we're really looking at it for the long run. Because as you know, any employer who's willing to, you know, put their money where their mouth is, particularly around staff, that is a good indication of um, what I feel is kind of that ethical approach to really trying to grow that side of the business. Yeah, that's awesome. And I mean, it sounds like you guys are very intentional and you have a very good plan about, you know, what you're doing. You're you're honoring what came before. You're honoring what's going to come after it. So it sounds like you guys have a very good sense of things, which is awesome to hear. Yeah, thank you. And and also, I know it's early over there because it's two o'clock here. So it's early over there. So I've heard a couple of chickens in the background. Yeah. <laughs> but they've been doing like the absolute perfect rooster. And so that's hilarious. I love that. Um, I feel like that always makes the podcasts more, more um, I don't know, more immersed in agriculture where you can actually hear the animals out there. Right, right. Yeah, no, <laughs> there's there's quite a few roosters. I, I'm My office is located in um, the Valley of Kulo, which is very near where the, uh, you know, the visitor center is. Yeah, okay. But if you think about it from a standpoint, I want to say, so we're just over 3,800 acres total. And I want to say, if you were to take pure square footage, I think we're at like 250,000 square feet of, of covered space. So wow. I say that meaning like if you put that over 3,800 acres, that's incredible in regards to, you know, it's still being in its natural state. And the fact that we're on Oahu, I mean, it's this business model is is something that we're, we're, we realize we're unique because we have the Hollywood, we have the property itself. But from a, a sustainable business model of incorporating open space preservation and local food production into what could be a land management model, as long as you can find that economic complement, which I realize is the hard part, but, oh, yeah. you know, coming out of COVID, it's it, food security has been the talk of the town. And, and I always take the opportunity to kind of talk about that, which is, you know, it's what I'm, what I'm imploring that we do as a community is rather than just say, okay, food security is important. Farmers and ranchers make it happen. You know, who's responsible is it? in food security, it's everybody's, right? We all want it, we all need it, we all benefit from it. So we all have to look at how we can take that, it takes a village approach to making sure that the people producing the food are doing it in a way that just doesn't cause them to go into more debt, if you will, you know? So, yeah, no, that's that's very smart. Cause I mean, you wanna do so much, but you don't wanna make yourself too busy where you're taking on too much responsibility. You're gonna go under financially. 
but yeah, I feel like you guys are in a really, really good spot. You've got a lot going yeah. on at the farm. Uh, you, you're very, very diversified, which is huge, especially, I mean, because if you guys weren't very diversified, like the pandemic hit, that would not have been good at all. Right. I mean, because like your tourism went away. And so mm. you were able to bring in money from all the other stuff going on at the ranch. And then mm-hmm. now, luckily, tourism's back up. You can do all of it. Which Keep is great. growing and stuff like that. And we always joke around. Part of our diversity, too, is nobody wants to look at 200 acres of eggplant. So <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that would get very monotonous after a while. That wouldn't be as interesting. You know, it's that like, would... oh, OK, so, yeah, no, there, eggplant. there's an eggplant. There's another eggplant. Yeah. Well, guess what? There's another eggplant. Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> It's all about crafting the crafting the, the message, yeah. Crafting the story and everything. Yeah. Well, well, Taylor, this has been awesome learning about Kualoa Ranch. Um, if people are in Oahu, mm-hmm. where can they go to tour, to sign up, to just kind of obviously try your beef, try the products? What all, where all can they go? So Kualoa.com, so K-U-A-L-O-A.com is the easiest way to find out about our, uh, our primary, you know, the whole business. You know, if you can book tours through there and everything like that. Um, our agricultural uh, um, products, we sell almost entirely through our on-site market, direct-to-consumer. And right now that is open Thursday through Sunday, 10 to 5 on-site. Hmm. However, what I do encourage people who want to learn more about the ag is we do have a dedicated Instagram. Um, I uh, got really smart and hired people younger than me to run it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Hash brown uh, dad jokes. Um <laughs> But I think the main thing is um, that is it's at Kualoa Grown, all one word. And that really speaks to kind of the diversity of what we do here. And, and that's that I always tell people that's a good introduction if you want to learn about that side of our business. It's a real, real good dedicated site to it. So, yeah, I started following that page like once we tour there and it's great, like just mm-hmm. announcing, you know, all crops, like what experiments you guys are doing. And also, I know. I think last week, The Rock mentioned that he's going to be doing a live action Moana. Yeah. And Kualoa was also like, hey, guess what? This is probably going to get filmed here. So get ready for more ranching, which is awesome. So I think that's really cool. But yeah, it's a great Instagram. And we'll link that all below and all the links for everything. I highly encourage anybody if they go out to Hawaii, do the tour. It's so fun. And I mean, there's a bunch of tours you guys offer, like the it's the movie tour, the behind the scenes tour or something like there's Mm -hmm. a bunch of options, right? A lot of it is, um, you know, we have experience tours and adventure tours. Adventure tours are things like e-bike, horseback, UTV. Mm-hmm. And what it is, is you're, you're really, you're not being taken through a uh, kind of a pre-scripted area. You're being taken through the property itself and just being, you know, doing something fun and yeah. about where you are. And then things like the movie site tour and the jungle tour, those are experience tours where, you know, you're able to really kind of go through the experience of seeing a place where movies are filmed, which is what you do. And then like the jungle tour is, you know, you're literally riding in these big trucks through a, a, a rainforest and learning all about that type of thing. So it's things you would not be able to do otherwise, which is why I think we're so popular. So. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, there's yeah. some places like on the movie tour where they, you still have the bones from, I think Kong yeah. Skull Island out there. And you can literally pick them up. Like they look like these massive, huge bones, but you pick them up, they're styrofoam. So yep. they're like super yep. light. It's so fun, but yeah. it's a little bit of movie magic that's still there. Totally, totally. Absolutely. That's awesome. Well, Taylor, this has been awesome, man. We'll link everything below. Great to virtually meet you. I think what you guys are doing is so unique and so cool. So best of luck. Awesome. Well, thank you, Trevor. I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to speak to it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. And be sure to check out Kualoa Ranch at the links below. They are such an awesome farm, awesome ranch. I highly encourage you to check them out. 
if you are ever in Oahu. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or family member, or even leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you might have listened to. Leaving reviews um, always helps us rank a little bit higher in the search results. Anytime somebody searches for a podcast like farming or food, we rank up a little bit higher the more reviews we get. And of course, you know, we have new episodes every Wednesday. But of course, we also have the Five Minute Friday newsletter and Five Minute Friday episodes that come out every couple of Fridays. And if you want to subscribe to that, the link is also in the description. We have awesome little updates on Farm Traveler, what's going on in the world of food and agriculture, and some cool little tidbits on things that I'm watching or reading, all that good stuff. And again, everything we mentioned will be in the description of this episode. And thanks for listening. We'll see you later. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.